Thick descriptions disrupts traditional educational methods. And why do we do that? Because we want to help humans thrive where they are, building better communities. One way that we do that is the Elephant in the Room Unboxed, where we give our audience members the tools and the resources to have those uncomfortable conversations and do it in a humane and anthropological way. We're doing this in partnership with Respect Diversity, another organization that is committed to doing the work with us. Each episode will have a different host and a different guest talking about uncomfortable conversations or uncomfortable topics and giving you the resources of how to navigate them. Let's get uncomfortable. Hello, and welcome to Elephant in the Room Unboxed. My name is Veda Pai, and I'm currently a graduate student at the University of Oklahoma. Today, our guest is Halith Revenholm. Halith is the founder of Culture Contact, a consultation service for businesses and non-governmental organizations wishing to bring inclusiveness into the workplace and to strengthen interpersonal relationships via anthropological methods. Her work does not end there, however, with her work ranging from crime, human behavior, and AI, and heritage work. In a specialized approach to anthropology, Helith brings a refreshing sense of understanding and empathy when interacting with businesses. Through anthropology, she has created a unique place for human interaction to be understood and questioned. As a budding anthropologist myself, with focuses on gender, race, and inequity in modern spaces, this conversation is a look into how society perpetuates problematic norms and how the use of anthropology can illuminate biases to put equity in the forefront. But first, let's understand the basics of what anthropology means for Helith as a consultant. Traditionally, many anthropologists are bound within the constraints of academia, which comes with several norms and structures. While that can be beneficial, it is interesting to see how anthropology is used at a ground level, such as interpersonal relationships within the workplace. First, Halith, let's understand how you came upon this work and use the methods of anthropology independently from academia. Well, um, hi, it's great to be here. Um, well, that, that's quite an interesting question. For me, this started during field work, uh, so terrain work when I realized that my informant actually felt that they had something to glean from my perspective as well. So it became a reciprocal relationship, if you want. And from there, obviously, I started looking at how, how this could be applied. Otherwise, then uh, thus, culture contact was born. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's awesome. I, you know, we've already spoken about my interests in um, independent anthropology, but I really want to know what values you lead with at Culture Contact, because I find that a values-led approach is always the best way to really relate to people, especially with difficult conversations such as race and privilege and, you know, discursive spaces. To be on completely honest with you and with our listeners, I guard myself actually from applying the word values. And there's a really good reason for that. It's not weird, it's not creepy, I promise. Um, at least it's good from where I'm standing. It, it's the following. We put a lot of social meaning into the world value while claiming the meaning is going to be equal, completely understood by everyone. So if I unpack that for a moment in actual context, we can have people claiming their values make them support human rights or only the rights as they understand them or only certain human rights or only human rights for certain people or rights they feel should be entitled, that they should be entitled to, um, regardless of what they mean for others. Or they may so sort of say that they do not support human rights at all 
because of their values. So, I mean, this is a hugely differing context from, you know, one understanding to another. And yet we use the one word and we claim it's all the same. So this doesn't only pervade our society right now, it has existed in the past, has a certain amount of continuity. And obviously how this plays out in practice in everyday context depends on, on the era, on circumstances, the intensity of emotion and uh, the effect involved. So um, effect for anyone who isn't an anthropologist or sociologist in a nutshell um, would be um, the way emotions are roused about a specific topic that may not, I would say, like actually factually touch us personally. Uh, and obviously I'm just fresh from, from a two-day conference that was big on that. So I can, yes, actually include this. Um, so to return to the question, I guard myself from speaking about values. Today, when we discuss values, what we are really doing very often is trying to figure out who sounds like they will tell us what we want to hear. And obviously, as a consultant, I really want to avoid doing that. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. What I offer is far more plain and blunt, I guess. I offer to use my knowledge in a way that will enable the client to gain insight into what they are going through or what might be at play in a broader context. So it's like no more, no less, because in the end, all talk about lasting change can be also misleading. I can bend over backwards. I know this because I've done this. And yet three months down the line, five months down the line, something will change. Maybe a team member will arrive or will leave. leadership will change. Society will clash over another thing. The results of my work with a client will change, obviously, because of that too. So um, because I like what we tend to think, the world is always changing. Mm -hmm. And that means social and cultural challenges repeat and shift too. Um, so what I try to give, um, I suppose, is tools, if you want. Um, I want them to see culture, see society. That, that This is like very avatar style, right? <laughs> I want them to, <laughs> totally, I always see, like, I see you, right? I want them to be able to understand why we do things the way we do. They are not cast in stone, but a matter of introspection, awareness, a thousand actions. More importantly, I do have a list of things I will not do and a list of clients I will not work for unless they were to approach me with a very specific request. So just attempting to make a very positive change in a way I can actually trust that they're going to really go through with. So um, I suppose if we try to go for a flashy, condensed statement, um, I lead with facts. I lead with investigation. I lead with teaching people how to learn to see who humans really are. And the part of that, obviously, is empathy. Mm -hmm. And I expect we'll come to that a bit more later because empathy, interestingly, while it shouldn't be, is also about an us and them division in a lot of ways. I hope that actually answers it. Yeah, I mean, that's so fascinating. Just understanding, I think the the discrepancies in how you differentiate values is very like particular because I feel like mm -hmm. as anthropologists, we use values a lot. And mm -hmm. for me, I'm a former peer educator. And so leading with values during, you know, possible defensive conversations was a huge thing in my training and shifting that now as I've moved th through academia and through my research is um, I think it's, I think there might be a different word for possibly what you're trying to lead with not you specifically but in general when you're leading difficult conversations but oh, yeah. i think the truth and like the honesty and the empathy mm -hmm. portion is huge because i'm doing very intense work i mean oh, you yeah. probably understand this about like about reproduction and yeah, absolutely Oklahoma with indigenous women and to not lead with empathy there is mm -hmm. to sort of discredit a lot of experiences. While I may not agree with my own political affiliation, it, there are context-specific 
pieces mm-hmm. that need to be understood. So yeah, absolutely. Um, when I was crafting this interview, I was really going deep into my own understanding of how I function as a researcher. So, um, well, that's really good because it really gives us an option to you know look at in a way how we differ in this and what we can learn from that. And I think that's actually right. really why we need to have these conversations. Right, right, yeah. And then separate from being an anthropologist, I feel like as a human being, having these conversations, mm-hmm. in the political world is. I always, I have other questions about that later, but when you deal with people specifically who are like, oh, I can't talk to Uncle George about his racist mm. tendencies because I don't want to get him defensive or I don't want to, it's it's too uncomfortable for me. But I think it's so fascinating to see how leading with empathy and leading with truth mm-hmm. can actually help in that process. And Absolutely. also- when using truth as like a mechanism of change and and doesn't necessarily mean that it is like a negative sort of call out statement in the Mm -hmm. ways that I've understood it, but um, you may disagree, but I'm just thinking broadly about all this stuff. So um, I love that you, you use the word tools rather than values. I really, I really love that. Like imagining. Um, So my second question sort of goes along with that, where it says, how have you dealt with particularly clashing views within interpersonal personal relationships? For example, positions of ethnocentrism and cultural bias is incredibly prevalent, but largely unrecognized. Um, And for clarification, so the meaning of ethnocentrism is the belief that one's culture is superior towards another so much so that it, it imparts judgment on an opposing or a different culture. It's not just the pride in one's culture, but superiority and the inferiority of another culture. So that's just a definition that I wanted to clarify. So yeah, how do you deal with those clashing views when you're working with a business or you're trying to mediate interpersonal relationships? Well, uh, first of all, I try to approach with fresh eyes. I actually always ask myself in a situation, Am I actually dealing, what, what is actually fueling this? Am I actually dealing with ethnocentrism or cultural bias or not? Because you will have people who have what, I have actually seen cases, for instance, where someone was reacting to a bad memory mm-hmm. from something. Obviously, this is, actually, this is so much more difficult. If I, if I could just tell you specific cases, right? actually, but I can't because... <laughs> So we're gonna like we're gonna be we're gonna be nebulous here. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you're for instance, if you're actually looking at people who have had legitimate fears in their lives from legitimate experiences, and that obviously will absolutely influence how they view others or you know how they did. I mean, I've seen trauma from war, trauma from assaults, and so on. Sometimes there's shared trauma, much like you see with the black community, the U.S. Jewish community, and honestly, I would say with other communities, including the LGBT, um, it's not been given necessarily as much spotlight for various reasons in the current debates on shared trauma. So basically, you always have to check, okay, fine, it looks like but does it also if we go like you know for the old saying it quacks like a duck right does it actually quack like a duck and um in obviously in in that case you have to actually look okay fine this person seems to be having a problem with a specific i don't know team member or whoever or maybe they have had a bad influence from an event that's making them feel something about, for instance, crime in a specific neighborhood. So I always have to see, okay, fine, am I dealing with a personal trauma? Or am I actually dealing with, shall we say, group held beliefs, right? And that in itself is already going to shift how I'm going to approach it. 
And obviously, I <laughs> whatever I do, and obviously, I, I actually I actually picked that uh, method from um, a forensic course. I think it was from Stratclyde that I took years back. Mm-hmm. Um, I always go with the six W's and um, ABC. So who, what, why, how, when, where, accept nothing, believe no one, check everything, right? Um, basically, what I try to do is I try to very gently, because obviously you have to be gentle, because in a lot of cases, if you are dealing with someone's trauma, right, these are going to be incredibly painful things that they may not really want to discuss with anybody. And the last person you want to discuss this with is, you know, like some some anthropological consultant who popped up because your boss doesn't think that you get along with other people well enough. But with, <laughs> seriously, I mean, if you think about it, put yourself in their shoes, right? It's like, what would you feel? For instance, um, in cases, um, for instance, of, of even multiple traumas. I mean, you know, um, if I if I take for instance, I, I did research quite a lot down in in ex Yugoslavia, and you'll have, for instance, women who have dealt with murders, with scarcity, with war itself as a as a trauma, with rapes, and then if you think about it, maybe even if they they migrate, they're going to potentially be dealing with someone from a similar background. This is going to open a floodgate, right? And the same is true for so many other people. So, okay, fine. Yeah, okay. Maybe you don't get along with X, Y, Z, but the question is why? Always, always why? Always. Yeah. I suppose this is where empathy really kind of plays in. It's like always start from the, I don't know your story, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And obviously we have to consider that group held beliefs, whether they are based on facts or factoids or nothing at all, mm-hmm. they also can have a very strong influence on us because they are a part of our identity, right? So basically, again, even if I will turn around and say, oh, okay, fine, you know, there, there is no horrible story. This is actually just bias. Right. I have to consider that this person may feel very touchy, <laughs> to okay. put it that way, about having to face the fact that what they've been taught. And you know, you don't forget that basically what we are taught are we are usually taught about people we trust, right? We are taught about people we love, you know? Right. Um, and very often, unfortunately, the people we love, especially older generations who have had the time to essentially live in the time of some pretty bad historic facts may have actually been observers, perpetrators, maybe they looked the other way, maybe they were victims of them. So all this is going to actually influence how somebody feels about something and how how personal it feels. Mm. So uh, this is this is how I always start. And obviously fine, this whether or not I'm going to get um, what kind of results I can actually hope for, whether or not I'm going to get into one approach and another that really just does depend on what I'm actually dealing with. So I, I know this is not a very good answer, but it's probably the best answer no, unless no, we go into specific cases. It, it goes so much into what, mm. like for me, I'm in sociocultural anthropology and I am going to jump to a little bit of another question, another topic that I oh, do next to this. Great is um, so I'm currently in anthropology of human rights class, mm-hmm. and we are learning about the position of, of anthropology within international mm-hmm. um, human rights framework and how anthropology has critiqued or either added to the conversation. 
And um, there was oftentimes a lot of critique of anthropology not being applicable to human rights frameworks because of the act of cultural relativism. So for listeners out there, cultural relativism is the um, placing of like cultural context in the understanding of whatever cultural situation you're going into. So for discussing the use of a specific item of clothing, rather than placing it in a bias of somebody who might not understand, you're placing it in the social context of that culture. Uh, For example, the use of hijab um, from an outsider perspective, it may be seen as oppressive or weird, but for some women and um, for some hijabi women, it is a form of expressing their modesty, expressing their womanhood as a way that's incredibly freeing. And so placing that in context is incredibly important to understand the broader meaning of that clothing. So that is just an example of um, cultural relativism. But in terms of human rights, there's a concept of critical cultural relativism, which um, sort of takes that context understanding like you were talking about earlier, um, but also allows for critiques to happen. It's not just like a blanket acceptance of whatever's happening. It's more rather a removal of one's own bias in determining like if something's unethical or problematic um, and placing like the actual context into whether or not human rights violations have occurred. I've been trying to lead with that because the work I'm doing can be really, really politically charged and Mm -hmm. um, working specifically on cases of abortion and, um, you know, reproductive politics in indigenous spaces. And, you know, a lot of people have a lot of different experiences Mm -hmm. and opinions about that. Um, And as somebody who has a particular opinion, it's really easy to go into that situation when I'm doing the research and sort of judge that based on Mm -hmm. my own assumptions. And as I've gone through all these processes, I'm like, hold on, wait, there's a reason for why they may or may not support abortion or the termination of a pregnancy, because, you know, you were talking about trauma and like, Mm-hmm. That he has huge play into oh, why yeah. people may or may not agree with that. So um, leading with that is huge. They sort of answered my question, but how has the critical cultural relativistic approach allowed you to lead with empathy, but not passiveness in the situations of tension? Well, I want to get one thing straight first. Terming cultural relative is actually heavily based on colonial thinking. Mm. And I'm going to tell you why. This is this is going to be another one of those really horrible moments. Because <laughs> there is nothing relative about pain. There's nothing relative about oppression. If we consider culture from the old-fashioned perspective, that everything has a reason, not only... We actually still get that, if you think about it. Everything happens for a reason. And I've heard a lot of victims get really angry about that. In a way, it's toxic positivity, right? So not only do we end up forgetting that culture is not monolithic, it's not cast in stone, it's generally unless it's like in heavily rigid context mm-hmm. where all diversity is banned, those not going when it are destroyed, a mix of at least slightly different behaviors or at least, you know, slightly diverse populist situations that shift through time and space. In really simple terms, um, when in 19th and 20th century, white Western anthropologists tried to do their best or worst to understand cultures, uh, they brought in an idea that culture was monolithic or at least that the so-called primitive cultures were, um, obviously we're using the term here educationally, (laughs) Um, whether they considered that good or bad. And this essentially means that culture is reduced to what as a specific time someone says it is, which we know so so far is basically 
really not true from everything that you know we've looked at um and all cultures all societies generally experience change all the time to some extent mm -hmm. so when we approach cultures as relative we are in a lot of danger of doing the following we're casting in stone the culture as it is at the moment or at a moment in time and how we or the writer if you want sees it which is a technically biased Casting in stone how our informants see it, regardless of what their motives might be. And obviously, I would like to point out that informants can have bias <laughs> enabling because obviously bullying, gratification through violence or sexual violence, discrimination and so on. Um, all comes with that um, because there are reasons, there are always reasons that may go unchecked because there is no recourse for the victims. And obviously through doing that, we are silencing the victims' voices and disabling any attempt at change. So I think from this um I've got like a very weird, you know, an uncomfortable relationship, I suppose, with cultural relativism. Mm. Um, what I do, what I suggest people to do is a certain amount of cultural awareness and a great amount mm. of curiosity mm. and empathy, if you want, cultural empathy mm. um, that should not at any point end up in abuse of human rights and in silencing of victims. And I'm going to be really horrible now, but the argument of you just don't understand our culture has been used by abusive powers when perpetrating genocide because someone else has been endangering them right or right, when discriminating right. against religion because this is I'm, I'm going to say like muslim or christian or buddhist country when discriminating against gender because in this specific culture it's a must for women or men to undergo something that they may not want to undergo but have no choice because of the rigid context of the culture in question and obviously when i'm talking about that i mean choices something that comes with the freedom to decide what i am going to do whether or not say for instance if i take hijab right um some women find hijab freeing but they should have the right to decide to do so mm. and when i talk about consequences right there should be no no pressure uh, from the family, no threats, et cetera, et cetera, no issues with employment, which we do know sometimes actually does happen. And again, this is not about Muslims. This happens to everybody. <laughs> um, so, but this is this is just an example because you actually talked about, and obviously with the war in Iran, I think what is practically war at this point, um, I think it is actually important to consider that as well. And obviously very loudly, this this type of behavior has been going against sexual minorities. I have literally had to hold my stomach in a few times in the past few years when researching hate crimes in cultures where, and I will quote now, gays don't exist. And obviously that means that you can do horrible things to them. So we should definitely be worried about bias, absolutely. But do we ever ask ourselves whether we are worried about a very dark type of positive bias when a researcher is trying to look culturally aware or very simply just adopt a culture for some reason and they're defining um, something as a as a horrific practices as an essential cultural practice to look good um, do we ever ask ourselves about our own implicit bias when we supposedly you know, like quote unquote understand the perpetrators and ending up silencing victims and mm -hmm. obviously those victims may represent something that we too have a history of repressing in our own culture so uh, it's kind of this yeah, could go this I mean, could go so hot so hard and so dark no it's, it's very, very, very that's the thing that i've been sort of wrapping my brain around and having these conversations with my peers and my professors is that like i personally don't think that cultural relativism mm. exact is exactly the correct term and like uncritical yes. cultural relativism is the exact right term to use in this case especially with dealing with something as severe as human rights violations absolutely because absolutely it's kind of hard to explain, but it's just sort mm. of a, 
you do need context to understand the political and social history that has brought yes it's yes. the victims and the survivors up until this point but you don't want it to be a position of blame of shame of absolutely absolutely go and, back to the know, whole idea of empathic empathic approach yeah, of compassion yeah. when we deal yeah. with this I've I've sort of coined in my mm-hmm. own in my own sort of understanding of all this process and trying to impart that on myself of possibly cultural critical context three C. Oh, I like that. I love yeah. that. That, like, that I'm gonna steal that. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna borrow that. I never cite cite right. But no, but this is actually a really good, a really, really good term. And I think you should popularize it. <laughs> so I can definitely borrow it because um no, this is actually something that I think we often lack words and terms, and very often what in, in this is like true of all sciences. We're building on accidental or otherwise prejudices of everybody before us, and unfortunately, that comes with a cost. Right. And unless we address that cost, and again, you know, like no anger, no rancor, no whatever, just basically observing whether or not. And this is something I actually learned through business in in business versus academia. You look at an idea and you figure out if it works. If it serves you, then you basically go with it. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Unfortunately, in academia, and this is something that I think academics have a lot more trouble struggling with because of, in a way, the peer pressure. Um, there's always this, well, you know, I'm going to defend my, I've got my theory and it doesn't matter if it's actually applicable. It's a theory and it, therefore it is valid and I'm going to defend it to, to, mm-hmm. to my death. And basically yeah. Yeah. that unfortunately that doesn't go anywhere. That doesn't go anywhere. Uh, yeah, no. I mean, it's just crazy to think about. I have so many opinions on academia and all Same. That But that's not really what we're talking about here. But um, yeah, I think critical cultural context is sort of a term that I've used to combat because I see the validity in critiquing cultural relativism. Yeah. Standpoint. It's yeah. really valid. And I think from the history of anthropology, it is completely mm-hmm. valid considering all of the colonial structures in place and how anthropology has contributed to that. Yeah. Um, but I think in terms of understanding how to proceed with human rights violations, it's not as simple as just applying the United Declaration of Human Rights. It is required. Oh, if, if it only was. <laughs> if it was, we would live in a perfect world. But it, oh, yeah. it requires a sort of a understanding of how colonialism and like mm-hmm. settlership and history and economic forces have played into how this has gotten to be so bad that doesn't yeah. mean that if you reverse these reverse like capitalism it's going to change but it it means that you have to understand those that background mm. in order to proceed you cannot just apply a universal concept which is no. what no. i I think I am trying to put across for our listeners mm-hmm. is like it's not a simple, not just in the context of human rights, but like when you're dealing with these hard conversations, it's not as simple as just telling somebody, oh, you're racist, oh, you're sexist, oh, whatever. Absolutely. You have to I, I really, I would really use this moment to caution against this because yeah. this is this is that approach where essentially you're essentially not trying to solve anything. You're essentially just looking for a fight. Yeah. And I'm not going to be very blunt about this because honestly, you know how it is. Like when you work for yourself, you don't really care who hates you. <laughs> but um, 
Yeah, honestly, those are those are really real problems. And if yeah. we want to solve them, we need discussions and we need debates. We need right, right. understanding with everybody. And you never get that if you're if you're just gonna get people defensive. Right, right. So. And it's it's such a fascinating thing as now I've been talking to my own family members about mm-hmm. biases and their own experiences with discrimination as immigrants mm-hmm. or second generation Indian Americans is I have to learn where they're coming from. I have to learn how they were raised. Like I have conversations with my father who was raised in the American South during the busing of of integration and during the civil rights movement Mm -hmm. and understanding his experiences with racism and language and understanding how he sort of internalized that and as he's such a good man, but understanding that he has his own biases and why he, while he may not outright be saying all this horrible stuff, he's, you know, processing that in his own way. And mm-hmm. when having these conversations about these big structural changes that can keep, that are really scary when you're not familiar oh, with it, of course. trying to lead with that. And of course, I'm my father's daughter and we butt heads a lot, but um... <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's good. That's good. But I think, I think, trying to have those conversations and understanding my parents' history and understanding why they are the way they are is so enlightening Mm -hmm. as somebody who is really trying to become more socially aware of of themselves. Um, Absolutely. So just leading with empathy and really trying to figure, like emphasize, I really want to emphasize to all of our listeners that like context here is huge and understanding context and empathy is huge because in order to have these hard conversations, or if you're trying to have these hard conversations with yourself, Mm-hmm. You may not understand the institutions that you were raised in, why you are either afforded or not afforded privileges, or why you are experiencing different things based on parts of your identity. It it can be really hard and really difficult to process, but that empathy and that context is really enlightening to sort of progress and help you become a better member of society. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, I I just went on my soapbox there for a second, but yeah, I love that. I love that. Those are great yeah. thoughts. Yeah. I have a couple of questions that sort of all overlap. A second question that I think is probably going to be very helpful for people is, you know, I've talked about this before, but how do you have hard conversations without letting emotions get in the way? Or is that even possible? Um, many people find it really difficult to have hard conversations surrounding their own privilege, race, or possible actions of discrimination against others. But um, when confronted with a hard reality, many can become uncomfortable or defensive, which is really understandable when you're not familiar um, or you're feeling sort of like called out or back into a corner, right? Um, but how do you advise that people let go of their quote unquote ego in a in a sense and start fresh? Because you deal with this all the time, mm. your clients and the people that you're working with. Well, absolutely. Um, to, to be honest, very often it doesn't actually pop up so much once you've already approached it. You know, because most people, they're used to, um, you know, like they come like a hedgehog, right? Because it like all the guard is up and they're so they're so uncertain or they already, you know, have had bad experiences with someone being very confrontational. Right. But when they realize that you're there with compassion, that you're there essentially just trying to discuss things in this like relaxed manner, <laughs> very often they kind of settle down a bit and it becomes possible to to enter these discussions and i mean one of the things for instance i did when i when i did um when i did um a panel i was part of a panel about um well lgbt immigrants um was like last year 
two years ago um, at University of Utrecht. Essentially, I asked everybody to imagine if they are blue-eyed, what would happen? This is like, this, there's, no, there's no significance in the, the eye color. I just chose an eye color that I don't have. So, um, you know, what would happen if they suddenly out outlawed all the blue people, you know, blue-eyed people? Um, what would happen if you weren't allowed to hold the hand of a blue-eyed partner, et cetera, et cetera. And that really, I think, and I, this is something I do use with my clients, actually. It's a little exercise. And I think it does really let people start to think outside of, oh, this is now going to be a conversation that is actually going to be an argument about something I don't necessarily agree with because I can't agree with it because it's targeting me personally, right? Mm -hmm. It's more about, oh, okay, this could happen to me, right? And what would that make me feel? Um, but obviously, it's also, it also depends on what we mean when we say emotions, because I honestly don't think emotions are necessarily so bad, right? We always talk about emotions as, as something bad, which is technically derived from Victorianism, how they felt they should deal or shouldn't deal with emotion. Right. Where emotion was something that's raw, natural, often considered female, childlike, but insane. And um, obviously, you know, total very unhealthy control of everything we feel was uh, social slash cultural, adult, masculine, insane. Um, but obviously, because we have emotions, we have emotions, period, and others have them too. And so I think showing emotions and allowing others to show those emotions, to live those emotions, I think that could be a good thing. And obviously, fine, we're not necessarily talking about massive anger or impatience here. Um, and fine, obviously, even there, it depends. Does the situation call for expressing anger and how are we expressing? Are we, are we talking like throwing chairs, which is so totally not on? Or are we express, expressing that, yeah, of course something makes us angry because there is a reason. Anger is a human emotion. Right. And yeah, I think the point is respectful anger, if you want. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, that obviously that takes practice, especially if this is you know, like you as a consultant or a researcher who's feeling that. <laughs> but um I think for others as well, you have to consider that you're going to have to allow for people to practice that themselves, to learn that it's okay to feel this, that it, it takes introspection to understand why we're angry sometimes. Right, right, right. I mean, for instance, to you know, like draw on my own experience here as an LGBT person. So um, I'm married to like the best woman in the world <laughs> and uh, I'm very, very biased about this, but um, I'm going to fight that. <laughs> And um, when I realized that essentially I'm in love with a woman, that felt like a humongous targeting cross all over my back. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was so much, if you want, internalized homophobia. Mm. And not quite just homophobia, because it's also realization that yes for some people you are a target right right that it felt very personal especially because i had had there was so much bullying in my life so much violence in my life and i mean you know for instance i was nearly strangled to death when i was like barely seven um and <laughs> i still can't actually wear choker necklaces i just can't i can wear some sweaters you know some turtlenecks but i just cannot do choker necklaces and Again, if you think about it, that's not really, this is a re realization of the fact that we are in fact in danger. So I think it's important to actually separate when we're aware of danger 
I think for, for instance, for, for black community, that's very often been the case in the US and obviously this applies otherwise elsewhere. But um, it does kind of like raise its ugly head every now and then. For instance, lately with, with the whole war in Ukraine now when um, certain Russian presidents turned around and blamed the LGBT. This is like literally why we are waging war and this is a war against LGBT people and the West. And I'm sitting there <laughs> telling to my wife, I don't know how I feel about this. I can't process mm -hmm. what this means for me. Mm -hmm. And what I said to her was, I'm going to have to talk to Gran about it because my grandmother is 100 and she is a war veteran. So basically she understands what it's like. She saw the World War II, she fought in the World War II. She understands this concept a little bit better. So sometimes I think it's very important to remember that we may not be able to process everything and that we need the time to process it. The, the, the emotions may be very confused. They may be coming from all sorts of places. And I think allowing others to do the same is, is crucial in all these debates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it's really like, I just, we've already had this conversation, you and I, but like these experiences are so formative and understanding how you, how you become who you are. Right. And mm, Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. When you're dealing with, when somebody becomes defensive, sort of having that empathy and understanding me like allowing them to have mm -hmm. that anger not necessarily re responding on the defensive of your own because yeah when you come to somebody or you're calling them out not even just about these hard conversations but if you're having a fight up with somebody it's going to be uncomfortable and it's going to be tough and sort of allowing that space to be a, like a sort of a clean slate i think yeah that's the thing that i've tried to use in my own life when I'm dealing with sort of like arguments with people that I love. It's not necessarily that that relationship is kaput, but it, the relationship <laughs> just needs time to heal because we are all processing things in our own way. And yeah. Also a convert, it's a conversation. It's not a lecture. Which, that, yeah. that, okay. I mean, yeah. applause because literally, <laughs> literally, literally that, okay. I mean, it's like, I always, I always try to impress upon people. Okay what is the result that we are aiming for right okay right so i think that's that's what we really really need to consider what are we aiming for are we aiming for being right right or is this a power is this like it's if you want to like a relationship right basically um is this about the fact that you're tired and you really really need protein <laughs> you know um it's one of those things. You're tired. You really need a protein shake because it's been a long day. You, you've, done, you've done like nothing much. You just had tea or whatever. You just need your protein fix. Did you actually just want to the other person to make you a protein shake and, and cuddle your feet a little and take the trash out because you're too tired to do it? Yeah. Is there an actual problem or, or what? You know, it has yeah. to be yeah. about a real solution in the end. Right. Right. No, I think, I think that's so important. And you know, we've already had these conversations about empathy and like how, what is the reason that we're doing this, right? I think, yeah. at least for me as an anthropologist, it can be so easy to try to fix all these problems in the world because mm. I see something wrong with it. And that's not necessarily <laughs> my place. You know, it's not necessarily my place to do that. And there's already so many people doing great things. 
I'm just sort of here to listen and like, I'm more than willing to sit there and let people talk because oftentimes I always, I was just talking to a friend about this where when I was a kid, I used to think that I knew everything and that I was like the smartest person in the world. And now that I'm an adult, I'm like, I don't know anything. I don't know anything. And that's totally fine by me. And that is such an enlightening, like exciting process for me to like, oh yeah relinquish that because I can learn from others that exactly. yeah and like mm-hmm. I think that's so freeing because even though I might have a degree or somebody may not have yeah. the same whatever like that can still be a learning moment I can like the community is such a amazing thing so oh yeah and that's just one thing that I was thinking about when we were discussing that and this next question sort of goes until we've already sort of addressed this but um how has anthropology and the exposure to possibly unsettling unfamiliar materials allowed you to analyze your own complicity in broader institutions such as race, class stratification, and socioeconomic boundaries? Well, it's it's complicated. Right. No, I mean, <laughs> it's it is. definitely complicated. Because, um, you know, on one hand, I was never, I mean, I've definitely grown up in contexts where prejudices were held. I mean, that that's a fact. Period. Uh, I mean, we all do, but I think the reason it's, the reason why I became an anthropologist was because I was asking uncomfortable questions. So for me, this journey wasn't the other way around. I am aware of the fact that for a lot of people, it is. Um, I mean, for instance, I can imagine that um, this, this is basically something a lot of us go through uh, when you come across a little tidbit and you're kind of like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I mean, I had I had a little moment like that. Um, when I was reading Lupton, I think it was Food, the Body and the Self in the first mm-hmm. first year. Mm-hmm. And obviously I, I started studying as as an adult. So I was a bit older than a lot of people I've seen a lot more. And I was looking at that and I was like, hey, what you say here is totally applicable to X, Y, Z, right? Right. Yeah. And it just becomes this like big wake up call of, whoa, okay, I've got like, I've got an answer. I actually found the paragraph that explains it all. Um, but on the other hand, because I asked a lot of questions before, and because to a certain extent I approached this from a slightly older perspective than most students do, um, I already spotted a lot of things in the actual anthropology itself that I suppose wasn't giving me the answers I was seeking. It was more mm. informing me why I don't agree. Right. And I think that is actually really vital because if we want to you know, remove bias, including from the science, we have to actually understand that being critical about where someone was coming from, what they were saying, what they were doing, even just understanding their, and when they're critical, I don't, I don't know mean they can be mean about it, but um, just understand their context and what may have actually influenced them already tells me, ha, huh, okay, fine, this works, this doesn't. And obviously this got really refined later on to work on train, so field work and mm-hmm. ultimately as a, as a consultant. Yeah. So I, I'm not sure if that answers the question. <laughs> the question I think it's a bit evasive, I suppose. But um, from, from my own perspective, for me, um, I suppose the biggest, biggest, hugest wake up call was actually um, falling in love with a woman and realizing mm-hmm. that basically that made me feel incredibly vulnerable. Right, right. Yeah. And I think those moments of vulnerability is so 
it's so scary. Like I, Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, I, absolutely. I'm a woman of color. I've lived in mm-hmm. South basically my entire life. I've, I went to a predominantly white institution mm-hmm. and I have a number of other identities that sort of in my position mm-hmm. can feel very isolating and very scary. Oh my God. Yeah. But I think absolutely. at least for me, like my dad and my family, like bless them. They, you know, social media is a thing that can be really <laughs> scary. But for me, like my age, there's so many great communities out there. Oh yeah, absolutely. Really allowed for the like creation of belonging. Like that yeah. has been so yeah. amazing. And really understanding that like people have very similar experiences to me, even if we're like completely across the world from each other. And I think, oh, yes. I think like, like social media specifically has been like, Instagram and Twitter and everything has been really amazing and sort of cultivating that belonging for people my age, even if it mm. may get flack from like older generations who, you know, understandably, if they don't have any exposure to it, if you don't understand something, something unknown can be really, really difficult to grasp. Yeah. Plus, we especially only ever with, really. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, especially with how fast technology moves, like oh, stuff yeah. changes every day that like you learn one thing and then it changes the next time it's gone tomorrow. Right. Exactly. So it can be really difficult to understand that. But I think especially in anthropology and like students, like they're really taking advantage of social media to, you know, create these huge political movements that I don't think Mm -hmm. would have had the power did without having this sense of community and having people, no matter where they are, connect. Absolutely. That interconnectedness is huge. But yeah, I think that vulnerability can feel really isolating sometimes. And not to say that it isn't present now, but I think that like vulnerability is something that can be really shared and really Mm -hmm. empathized with, which I think is really nice, really nice to see. Um, well, speaking of, of social media, I do remember one case, for instance, uh, I mean, first of all, yeah, definitely with older generations, especially because most of the time, everybody hears just about what's wrong with social media, right? And I mean, there is a lot wrong with social media. It can be a very scary place, but like you said, there's a lot of community feeling. I mean, I remember one thing, for instance, that kind of sticks in my mind because obviously um, I, I am on Instagram, et cetera, et cetera, and I do remember... Even even though I'm not that young, right? <laughs> but uh, I do remember one occasion when someone, an LGBT group, um, I don't know where they were because they were very cagey about it. I fully understand why. I mean, it's about personal safety. But I don't even. I'm not even sure if you know if they consider themselves male or female or whatever gender. But they definitely said that they are gay and they are basically at death's door. As far as they're concerned, they are suicidal. They can't do this anymore. And they were a team. And what I actually said, and apparently this is me actually going from what they told me, uh, apparently literally walked them off the ledge, was that, you know, you could just play that you're like a secret agent. (laughs) One day day you're going to actually manage to get out of that. And apparently that was enough. I mean, I, I literally, yeah. this was the only thing I could think of saying in that particular situation. Right. And I am so grateful that that was the right thing to say. Right. Yeah. 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 I think even not, I think a lot about toxic positivity and sort of all of that mm. stuff that surrounds, especially with mental health. Yes. And sort of mental health and marginalized communities can be so... Mm 
it's so tough to deal with, but I think having that honesty and having that validation of being like, yeah, "Yeah, you're right. This does suck. Like, yeah, absolutely. Or or somebody who is not in your position and ally being like, I am here to listen and I am here to absolutely be a comfort rather than a lecturer is so refreshing. Like I think a lot of people my age, at least, you know, everybody has their own opinion. Everybody has their own way of dealing with things. But the people that I've sort of met and discussed this stuff with, it's like really refreshing to hear my like white counterparts be like, listen, I'm just going to shut up and I'm just going to listen. And you just talk about whatever. And if I'm just here listening and that's what you get out of conversation, then I'm totally fine with that. And that is such a beautiful thing. That That is beautiful. I think listening is is a huge, huge tool that like, I think really needs to be cultivated because yeah, not absolutely. many people have that ability, no matter their age. I think it's a very hard thing to sort of active listening to get yourself into. But I think once you learn that, it is so enlightening. And so I keep using that mm. word, but that's just how I feel about all this stuff. <laughs> no, um, but it is. It is very enlightening because it does give us this. Um, and I said to apologies, I think we, we are very much into that. We love listening to other people anyhow. And, um, yeah, I think it does give us this insight into who this other person is. And three quarters of all the issues in the world, all the hate, all the bias, all the misunderstandings are down to the fact that we do not see the other person as someone who's just very similar to ourselves. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think that's so, so big seeing cultural similarities rather than differences. I think that's huge, especially in dealing with all these like really intense things. Mm. whether it be abortion or whether it be you know genocide or war or yeah i think that's huge and it's a matter of getting the general public not just you know the people in power to understand that uh because that can be really big but um, absolutely the, ne- the absolutely. next my next last it's gonna be like my last question because this sort of relates to everything we've talked about but um in an article titled cultural indoctrination and introduction you and Carol Reed have discussed the topic of indoctrination and the response to stimuli becoming maladaptive. Um, how has this been seen in the public sphere with, for example, people stating that their past possible discriminatory behavior was ingrained in culture? How do you deal with the concept of racism being ingrained but dismissed when called out in a broader culture? First, real article. So uh, that was written together with my wife. We've actually, especially me, because I, I work more in that whole sphere. And this is actually, you know, like grown since then, because, you know, papers are stuck in a moment, but right. the theory goes on. And yeah, how, how does this apply? First of all, you have to understand that we consider all our responses to be adaptive, but in fact, they are not. Right. Um, under adaptive, I mean adapting to what the situation calls for. Mm-hmm. For instance, um, I, I love to pull out like saber-toothed tigers because I love <laughs> saber-toothed tigers. So you know, in, in the old days when basically saber-toothed tigers roll around the earth, you could actually meet one and then you were like, well, that's not good. <laughs> and <laughs> you had options, right? Either you, um, you froze and, and you kind of like played invisible, which I don't know how that would work. Um, you know, I suppose it depends where you are, uh, or you could fight, you could, you could go for, for running or whatever, climbing a tree. I have no idea if they climb, so I have no idea whether or not that would be a good, good response. 
But basically, those are kind of like these clear responses to clear stimuli from the environment. And fine, in in, a, in an argument, for instance, you can actually go for appeasement. So there's there's like you know these options that we have to deal with a specific situation. But as we know from mental health issues, not all reactions are necessarily reactions that serve a purpose. Right. So basically, what happens is we can develop and internalize and group share if you want mm -hmm. um specific behaviors that really really don't work well and actually this is something hilariously that i do work with a lot since the pandemic has started not in any racial situation for instance but because of supply chains um <laughs> this, is, this is really funny in a way because it's it's such a departure from you know like all the really serious um but you know how it is when you when you're an anthropologist you deal with a lot of stuff and <laughs> One of the things that I've been meeting with constantly in my work at this point is when supply chains did what the supply chains did and it wasn't all reliable and you could you know, like try to talk to the colleague across the world and then basically they could try and send stuff, but it wasn't working, as we know, a lot of people just went into this kind of, I don't know, fugue state of... I have to do it more, I have to do it more, I have to do it more. Right. I've noticed that especially men, um, because they are taught generally to be like efficient and to really mm. you know, put themselves into it, um, they would just start to do and do and do and do. And it, it doesn't matter how many times you ask, have you sensed the shipment if the ships aren't going anywhere, <laughs> you know? Right. But there was this, there was this maladaptive, this definitely maladaptive, it serves no purpose, you know? It's torturing them, it's breaking up relationships with colleagues in the office all over the world. If this is a boss who is now yelling at someone because basically, you know, they are not doing it enough, it's, like, it's right. not working, right? right so right. basically, you're going to have that. And when it comes to getting out of that it's scary right it's very very scary because this is something that gives you this feeling of control right, right? and i think something very similar can actually definitely be noticed with all the biases and prejudices mm -hmm. because our cultures include them our cultures will always include them um i have a bunch of theories many of them completely not really unwritten yet because this is you know this is long long-term work about why how this started how it continued but again i'm not gonna go into that because we'll be here until the cows come home and <laughs> we don't have any hay <laughs> so um what i am going to say is the reason we actually stop being adaptive is because the group becomes the more important thing. And I think that's always down to how stressed we feel, how endangered we feel. And, you know, that can be imagined or real. Mm -hmm. And because group is important, and obviously fine, this starts with self, continues with friends and family, people that basically help us survive. We're, we're group creatures. This dependence on the group can actually lead to the point where upon meeting a saber-toothed tiger, we no longer ask ourselves, shall we climb a tree? We ask ourselves, are people I kind of care about going to be angry if I climb the tree? Okay. Mm. And this is where the, this argument, this actually really ties back to, to what we were discussing in a way that a lot of the times we learn culture, including bad things, from people that we love, that we trust, or that we wanted to love and, and trust, because obviously not, not all families are going to be supportive, not always going to be um, good families. So there's, there's always this feeling of 
But if I belong to this group, how do I how do I respond? And again, that in itself by default is a maladaptive response. You're not asking yourself, is the situation actually a problem? You're asking yourself, what should I think? And that is that is so dangerous, mm-hmm. actually, mm-hmm. Right. including just from per- personal safety from from right. that perspective. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that whole thing sort of sums it up perfectly in the way that people react with these hard conversations. Mm-hmm. When your when your normative reality is threatened, it can be so yeah isolating because you think about what other people think about you. Yeah, and how absolutely. that affects your position in society or in your family that can be really hard. And obviously, that mm-hmm. makes total sense if there's a possibility that your personal safety is going to be threatened if you dissent or whatnot. But yeah. I think in terms of people trying to do the work to change, we've mm. said this throughout the episode, but empathy and context yeah. and honesty are huge. When yeah, when absolutely. analyzing yourself, when analyzing the interactions between others with having those conversations about relationships, it can be really beneficial to lead with that. Also knowing where something comes from, right? right? Knowing where something comes from. And this is obviously why um, I initially did archaeology and anthropology as a degree, because um, ultimately I wanted to see history in a very kind of forensic sense, shall we say, <laughs> in material culture, know what we can actually glean, what we can. And obviously that in itself can help because a lot of, um, a lot of beliefs we hold, for instance, are also down to a specific point in time. And then, you know, time goes on, we find more stuff. And that can actually be incredibly, incredibly useful in these conversations. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think overall, it's just finding ways to critique human connectedness, not in a way that's mm-hmm. negative yeah. or demeaning, but in a way that benefits people and understands mm-hmm. that like we are all in the same field in terms yes. of our relations as humans we are all human beings whether or not that is necessarily recognized under whomever mm-hmm. like i think when dealing with these bigger situations such as human rights that is huge um and just finally i think I, I think you'd agree with me on this, that our final <laughs> our final three words in the way that we've discussed all of this stuff is context, empathy, and honesty, right? Like that, Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You got three, it right there. The three tools, calling back to the beginning, where we use to have these conversations. And I think yeah. that is really helpful in people trying to do the work or people who are uncomfortable doing the work but are still doing it, which is a very commendable thing. Yeah, no, I think that is that is literally it. I mean, yeah, it's <laughs> not. It's <laughs> there are so many ways we could approach this. And, you know, it's like a topic you could actually spend for for years, probably. Yeah. But and not just a podcast episode. But yeah, ultimately, it is about understanding that this is not about this is not about hate. It's not about destroying anybody or anybody's identity this is just simply about being able to have the space to recognize that you are safe to think of other people as people mic drop i'll just end it right there (laughs) that's great i like i love that i think that's the best way we could end this you know so 
Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me in this conversation. I really appreciate it. You and I could talk for hours, but. Oh, we totally should. We should, we should sit down (laughs) with a cup of coffee. Yes. yes. I'll fly over. Um, Thank you so much for coming on here and indulging in all my questions. I really appreciate it. So. Thank you for inviting me and thank you to everybody who's who's been involved with this podcast. This has been a huge, huge honor and I'm so, so happy that I can just, you know, like share a little bit and I hope this was useful. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not doing too, too weird and confused. No, I think it is. I think it is. Thank you for listening to Thick Descriptions, Elephant in the Room Unboxed. Want to learn more about us, what we're doing to disrupt traditional educational methods? Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, thickdescriptions.org, 405-397-0584.